hate to say good morning again, but good morning. <laughs> now, depending on where you find yourselves this morning, I could find myself in hot water asking this question. But by a show of hands, who likes sandwiches? All right, all right, pretty much everybody, right? Sandwiches. I'm not going to address that one there, Born. <laughs> Sandwiches come in all sorts. The basic blueprint of a sandwich, when you boil it down, comes to two pieces of bread and your choice of filling in between. It could be peanut butter and jelly, or just peanut butter, or just jelly, or ham and cheese, and all sorts of different cheeses, right? Uh, and the list goes on. You can make a sandwich from all sorts of things. My kids like to make little peanut butter sandwiches between graham crackers with peanut butter in the middle. All right? That's a sandwich. You can make an ice cream sandwich or a cookie sandwich. But at the end of the day, a sandwich really boils down to the beginning and the end being the same and the middle being whatever you make it, all right? You might not realize this, but your Bible has sandwiches in it too. Now, before you like get hungry and start eating your Bible, <laughs> being figurative here, all throughout Scripture, we have sandwiches used. It's a literary structure. It has a specific special name that I don't really know how to pronounce. I think it's chiasm, uh, but it basically makes a point builds the point, and then comes back to the point again, and it makes a sandwich, all right? This morning, we're going to see that uh, Paul is going to be putting the top bun of a sandwich that we've been building over the last couple weeks. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians 2. If you don't have your own Bible, there are some around the room. My initial plan this week when I sat down was to cover verses 12 through 18, but the Lord had other plans. We, we will read verses 12 to 18, but we're going to be studying just verses 12 and 13 this morning. So with your Bibles open, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of it, the complexities of it, but also the simple truth that is expounded in it. Lord, that you love lost sinners, that you sent your son to take our place, to pay the penalty that which we could not pay, and extended the gift of grace to all who would receive out of love for your creation. Lord, as we have your word open this morning, I pray that you would speak, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would illuminate your word to us this morning, and that it wouldn't just be another dose of head knowledge for the week, but Lord, that this would be an opportunity to see transformation take place from the inside out. So Lord, I ask that you would lead this, this time together, this time that we have together in your word with you leading. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear you this morning. Lord, and again, if there may be any burdens that we're carrying, Lord, I pray that Right now, we would release those and just simply sit at your feet and listen. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. And again, we'll read verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Paul, over the last couple of weeks, we've uh, been studying. Paul's been making a point. He made a point back in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we've been packing, or unpacking, I should say, what that looks like, right? How Paul is, is teaching the church to only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's been building and building. And, and, and today we see a therefore, right? In verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And like I said last time, anytime you see a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? There, it's a connecting uh, statement, right? The therefore connects a previous point to the next point being made. And so with us starting with a therefore, we have to remind ourselves, what is the point that Paul's connecting? Well, the point is, the previous point there would be that all followers of Jesus are to only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, right? And so the point, the previous point is that all followers of Jesus are to live this way only as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he made two uh, conditions with that. One being in complete unity with one another and with one mind, or as we described last week, that one-mindedness means like a worldview, having the same worldview. And the second point of that is with selfless love and humility. And we learned last week that that only comes from Jesus himself as our example, that Jesus Christ is the example to us of what it looks like to love selflessly and with humility. Therefore, with that being the previous point, therefore, he moves on. He says, my beloved. This is a term of endearment to the Philippian re uh, readers, right? The Philippian church, and, and for us, for that matter. This word, my beloved, reveals Paul's deep affection for these believers. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, this word obey literally means, go ahead and go to the next slide here, guys. There we go. There's the previous point. Previous point would be that all, as a follower of Jesus, we are to only live lives 
as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, who are united with one another in faith and worldview, to love selflessly and with humility, looking to Jesus as our only example, knowing that one day every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the previous point. Therefore, with that being true, he addresses the Philippian believers and us for that matter, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. What's interesting about this word obey, it literally means to answer the door. So obeying then is in response to hearing or listening. Obedience comes in response to what we hear. A knock on the door, for instance. It says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. If obedience is about responding to what you are hearing, then we must ask, am I listening? Am I listening? Am I actively listening for God to speak to me through his word, through other believers, through the Holy Spirit? And he says, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence were to obey. This means that our obedience to living as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ can never rely on whether your pastor or elder or any other believer is present. Our obedience can never rest or rely on whether somebody else is around. Rather, even more, when there is no one around, each of us are to be obedient to this way of life. And then he goes on to this next statement. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I, as I came to this verse, I realized that this is a verse that we need to unpack. We need to understand what Paul is saying here. Okay, So, the question is, what does Paul not teach about salvation? Paul does not teach that we are to work for our salvation. And he does not teach that we're to work to maintain our salvation. So, what does Paul teach about salvation? Well... He has plenty of teachings through his writings on salvation. Romans 3, 20, verse A, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Again, in Romans 3.28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2:16 Paul writes, "Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified." Ephesians 2:8 and 9, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing." 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Clearly, Paul teaches in his writing that salvation is a free gift given to man by God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. It is not by works. If, it could be, if salvation could be earned by the work that we do, Jesus' death was meaningless. It didn't have to happen, and therefore God would be unjust. So Paul is very clear that salvation is not earned. It is not by what we do that we are saved. So what is Paul talking about when he says to work out your own salvation? Well, we also have other writings from Paul. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul teaches this. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, here in verse 12, where he says, for we are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have to understand what Paul is talking about when he says salvation. And if you heard in some of those Romans uh, verses, there was a word used called justification. We have to remember that Scripture teaches us that salvation has three phases or tenses, a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense, all under the umbrella of salvation. The past tense is what we call justification. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved. That's past tense. That was that one time in your life that you repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Christ. You were saved. You have been saved. That is justification. And that is past tense. The present tense for salvation is what we call sanctification. Paul, in his writings to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice the present tense. We are being saved day by day by day, minute by minute by minute. We are in the process of being saved. That is what we call sanctification. And then lastly, there's a future tense, which we call glorification. And it is the will be saved, right? 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. To give a little bit more context to that particular part of this verse, I would like to read verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is our justification. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, this is that sanctification piece, that building, that, that, that active life. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day being that judgment day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In this one section in the, to the Corinthians, Paul reveals that salvation is a past, present, and future tense. It's all-encompassing. Therefore, we can see that Paul is teaching us that works do not earn salvation. Nor do our works maintain our salvation. Rather, works are the fruit of our salvation, and they are the very things that God himself has prepared ahead of time for us to walk in through obedience as we are being saved. With that being the understanding of what Paul is saying to work out your own salvation, Paul instructs the church, the Philippian church, to work out its salvation with fear and trembling. This idea of fear and trembling literally means in terror, but it specifically means with reverence and awe, with a deep conviction. And so the works that God the Father has prepared for you to walk in through obedience, you're to do so with a deep conviction, with reverent fear and awe of who God the Father is. So we do not earn salvation with our works. Our works do not maintain salvation. They are the fruit. They are prepared by God for us to walk in. I know that this is a difficult verse because there are some, depending on your background, there are some denominations that take this verse to say this is how you maintain your salvation. But as I read scripture and understand what God has given to us, what can we lose that was freely given to us? Does that mean that once we're saved, we can do whatever we want? No. Because the truly reborn believer will have this innate desire, this deep conviction to live this life that God has called us to live. So where do works come in when it comes to salvation? We are saved by grace and grace alone. Our faith in Christ, it's a gift. But it requires repentance. It requires us surrendering our will to the Father's will by proclaiming Christ as Lord in our life. And I believe that only God the Father truly knows the heart that has done that. And so, I'm not here saying, once saved, always saved. 
but I'm pretty clear that scripture tells us that we can't lose true salvation and true redeeming work of the Holy Spirit in our life through the cleansing blood of Christ. And that the work we're to do when it comes to our salvation is the very work that God has prepared ahead of time by calling us out of this world into himself. He has purpose. He has work for us to do. But we have to listen. We have to be willing to surrender day by day, moment by moment. This is the act of sanctification. This is the act of becoming more and more like Christ. And Paul continues in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, Paul puts it very clearly. God is who works in you. He's the one doing the work. He gives us the desire. We have to listen. He gives us the work. We don't have to be busybodies trying to figure out what God wants us to do. He's already given us work to do. We have to listen. He's prepared work for us to do. We have to listen. But the other reality is that God will not force us to obey. He never has, and he never will. He will not go against your will. You and I have to surrender to his leading. We have to surrender our will to his leading. And this is what sanctification looks like. It's that ongoing, continuous surrender, moment by moment. Paul here says, for it is God who works in you. God is at work in the lives of our community. Yes, he's at work in you individually, in us as a church, but he's also working in the lives of the lost. Because only God can draw a lost soul to himself. Only God has the power to redeem the lost. But he has given us work to do in that process. Well, so one might say, so why, why, Pastor Chris, why, why are we focusing so heavily on this issue, these two verses that you've spent the last 25 minutes or so expounding on? And I would say, well, why is Paul so concerned with their obedience? Because living a life only as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ means that all loyalties must be set aside. Paul is clearly addressing these Philippians, and he made the point in, one, in chapter 1, verse 27, to only live this way, to only live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that was the bottom bun. He expanded on that over the next verses to where we get to today, and I would include that 12 to 18 would be the top bun, though we didn't have the time this morning to expand all of that properly. 
that this is the top part of that sandwich that Paul's making when he makes this point to only live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that means that all loyalties have to be set aside. Paul knew that these believers benefited greatly from the privilege of being a Roman citizen. And we don't understand that. We don't comprehend the importance of the context of this letter. Because these Philippians, though they were Greek, had Roman privileges as Roman citizens and everything that the law gave them. Which meant that they, let, they in, in comparison to the cultures around them, they had it pretty good, culturally speaking. And Paul is telling these believers who have it pretty good compared to the rest of the world around them, that no matter how good you might have it, you're not to live that way. You're to live only as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's your focus. Even if it means sacrificing some of that cushy life. Sometimes worldly privileges can make life comfortable and make us idle in the God-given mission that we've all been given. Not just one person, but the whole church has been given this mission. Paul wanted to make sure that all believers, regardless of where they were in the world, whatever their status is, whatever their privileges, knew that what mattered most is that each believer was only living as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. The reality is giving up some of those worldly privileges can be difficult especially if we've tied them together. There's nothing wrong with having pride in a nation. There's nothing wrong with being proud of where you're from. But when that pride supersedes God, or is even on the same level as God, that's idolizing. That's an idol. And I love all of you. And I love the I, America is the greatest country to this day to live in. But until the church separates itself from our pridefulness of a country, we won't see revival. It's not God and country, it's God then country. God first. And until each one of us start living into this citizenship that we're supposed to be living based on what the Bible teaches us, we're going to have things in the way. Loyalties that conflict and lost people dying. And this is not, it's not easy to say because every time I talk about this, 
I feel like I'm being looked at as anti-American. I'm not anti-American. I, I pray for our country. I pray that, th- that our president would wake up and repent of the sins. I, I pray that our leadership would do that. I am not anti-American, but I am pro-Christ. I am all in for Jesus. I am all in for the Trinity. I am all in for God the Father and the work that he wants to do. And if we truly want to see God's kingdom, we have to be willing to let go of some of these things we've held on to so desperately for so long. And that's a dangerous thing to preach right now. That is not an attack on anyone. That is not to say that I don't love our veterans, because I do. I cherish all of them. My grandfather served in the military. I have an uncle who served in the military. And I'm thankful that the service that they have given us has given us the the life that we have. And I'm so grateful for that. But as a follower of Christ... Christ has a mission for us to live out, to be on mission. And sometimes that means we have to choose God first. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just... uh, thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful for how you speak through your word. I'm thankful that even in the difficult passages, you are here, that you are moving, that you are speaking. Lord, I pray that as we go into this new year, Lord, that you would align our hearts with yours, Lord, that you would give us eyes for the harvest that is plentiful, but the workers are few, that you would lift our eyes off of ourselves into this lost and hurting world right here in our own backyard. And Lord, that where you knock, we would listen. When you knock on the door, we would hear and we would respond as your church, as your bride. That you would lead us this year in the Great Commission. That you would lead us to make disciples. That we would see baptisms this year. That we would see lives transformed in your name. Lord, that is the cry of my heart. It's in your name I pray, amen.